You're listening to the Library Pros Podcast with Chris and Bob, a techie librarian and a computer IT guy discussing libraries, technology, and all things this side of the reference desk. Thanks, Carl. Hi, and welcome to episode 40 of the Library Pros Podcast. I'm Chris. And I'm Bob. We're coming to you from the Sachem Public Library's new podcasting studio, The Booth, in Holbrook, New York. If this is your first time listening, thanks for coming. Library Pros Podcast is produced bi-monthly, so don't forget to subscribe to our RSS feed, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Podbean, and via our email subscription service on our webpage, thelibrarypros.com. And if you like what you hear, consider leaving a review on the service of your choice. We are also on Twitter at The Library Pros and on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash The Library Pros. Today joining us via Google Hangouts is Jill Hurst-Wall. Jill is the and is a associate professor of uh, of practice. Is that right, Jill? Okay, you're probably going to say way too much about me, but okay. yes, I'm an associate professor of practice at Syracuse University School of Information Studies. Excellent, and that's also called iSchool. Is that like the yes. catchy phrase for it? Yes, it is. Okay, she's also a board member in the Onondaga County Public Library uh, for the Board of Trustees and and the owner of Hearst Associates. And in 2012, Jill was honored with the Syracuse University's Jeffrey Katzer Professor of the Year Award, which is really cool. And it recognizes full-time faculty members for outstanding teaching, advising, and service. And in 2007, Jill was honored uh, with the Minority Small Business Champion Award by the Syracuse Office of the U.S. Small Business Administration. And in 1993, she received the Distinguished Achievement Award from the South Central Research Library Council for work with corporate librarians in New York State's Southern Tier. Jill is also uh, a usual, usual suspect and editor of the podcast, T is for Training, with one of our former guests, Maurice Coleman, who we will be picking on mercilessly in this <laughs> podcast. Uh, she's also been a guest speaker on a number of conventions around the United States. So we have to say, welcome, Jill. Thank you for having me. I've oh. been looking forward to this. So we're going to speak with Jill about her experience as a content creator and how important accessibility is for patrons in a library setting. But first, let's talk with Jill about how she started in library land. So are you, you originally from upstate New York? No, I'm originally from Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. I have family in New York State, so I spent a lot of time uh, in Elmira, New York growing up. And uh, went to Elmira College, uh, Worked in Elmira, uh, worked in radio for four years, went off to grad school, came back to New York State, and have been here ever since. That's great. So, uh, Jill, can you tell us a little bit more about where you received your MLS? Sure. Um, so, back, way back uh, before lots of people were born, uh, when you applied to graduate school or applied to college period, there was no internet. Um, there was no email, there was no nothing. And so, uh, to make kind of a long story short, and to Maryland, uh, could not go and visit Ethan. Um, nope, you're breaking up a little bit, Joe. Online or, or anything. Um, so, I picked them kind of based on what I knew and what people would think the University of Maryland on the trees, but when I asked, no one knew if they had trees to University of Maryland for my grad. 
Oh, we're losing you a little bit, Joe. You're breaking up there. Uh, and then, uh, so I have a math library science, and um, and that's my terminal degree. So wow. yes, I'm a I'm a faculty member who does not have a a doctorate. Well, that's interesting. We lost some of what you said because you broke up there for a second. We heard something about a tree, or something. <laughs> So what I said was, when uh, back in the day, before the internet and before Google Street View, you didn't have a lot of uh, good information about schools. All you had is what they would send to you. Mm -hmm. And so um, I applied to Columbia. I applied to Maryland. I asked people what they knew about each one because I couldn't visit. Um, I asked someone who had been to Columbia, who had graduated, if they had trees. And the person couldn't remember, and so I went to Maryland because Maryland was an ag college with cows on campus and um, and trees. So, uh, oddly <laughs> enough, that's how I, that's one of the ways I picked where to go to grad school. Now, see, Chris, I heard all that. So your 112 meg internet speed is just a little too slow, I guess, to, to handle it. I don't know. Maybe it's my laptop. Who knows? <laughs> oh well. So, see, we got to hear the story twice. That's great. Well, actually, it probably it's going through my board, so nobody heard it on my end. But anyway, <laughs> this is a technological nightmare. Uh, so tell, tell us how you got involved in teaching and training, because I know training is part of Maurice's uh, whole gig uh, with his podcast and everything. And uh, it really is fun to listen to you guys talk about the, the training end of things. But tell us how you got involved with teaching and training. My um, job in graduate school, uh, my second year, was to be a graduate assistant. And I was a graduate assistant for two faculty members, which meant that I helped with their classes and did some other things. Uh, so I was doing end user support on computers um, in graduate school, and that included dial-up uh, terminals, if you are old enough to remember. Oh yeah, 4,800 board modems. That's pretty fast, I don't know. Oh, you're and at 1,200 so, probably. <laughs> and so, Fax machine. And, uh, and so then I went from there to Coining Glassworks, which became Coining Incorporated, doing end user support. And that's how I got involved with training, because that group not only supported doing um, end user computing on an IBM mainframe originally, but also did training. And so I, I became part of this group that did training. And I've done training ever since then in one form or another. So that might be uh, one-hour sessions, webinars, uh, half-day workshops, full-day workshops. Uh, and then in um, 2001, uh, doing semester-long graduate classes. And my first graduate class I taught was actually online. Um, and then uh, came to actually physically came to Syracuse that fall in 2001 and started teaching both on campus and online. I love the name, Chris. The next question is great. It says, can you tell us about Syracuse University's iSchool program? And I love the idea of iSchool. It sounds fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. So we are one of a growing number of iSchools around the world. So they're information schools. Um, some of these are schools that have library science programs. Some do not, but they all have this base of information um, within them. Uh, so my school uh, has six plus degree programs, 
uh, we have an undergraduate degree in information management and technology. We have a graduate degree in library and information science, uh, one in information management, um, some other degrees in there, uh, data-related degrees, uh, and a doctorate uh, program. But the whole um, core is technology, information, and people. And that's really what hangs our school together. All right, so we have the $64,000 question now. How did you get mixed up with Maurice? How did you meet him? Where did that association begin? Well, tell, tell us that story. And if you don't know who Maurice Coleman is, he was uh, a former uh, or a previous guest on our podcast. And he has a podcast, T is for Training, which is a great podcast. Sound quality not so good because it's all over the telephone. But that's fine because the content more than makes up for it. So <laughs> check it out on iTunes and every place else you get, uh, you get your podcasts. And, yeah, we're giving him a free plug. He was such a memorable guest as well. Oh, we laughed so hard. He, he's like the only one still to this day that has closed out our show, right? He actually read all our outros and everything. Yeah, he closed yeah. us out. Wow. He gave up on us and just closed it all out himself. <laughs> <laughs> he's like, I'm done. I'm closing this show. That's, how did you know? That's exactly how it went. That's exactly how he said. <laughs> um, so I think it was 2008 that uh, Maurice and I met. Uh, it might have been 2007, to be honest. But anyway, Maurice and I met in an elevator uh, at the Hyatt Hotel in um, Crystal City, Virginia, at the Computers and Libraries Conference. And that Sunday night, there had been a, um, a game gaming night at the conference. The conference perhaps still starts with the, the night before, kind of a gaming tech zoo type event. And Maurice and I had seen each other from across the, the way. And uh, the next day, we're on the elevator together. And Maurice looks at me and um, rattles off some key points that he had noticed about me and, and my spouse, and then says, are you Quaker too? And the doors <laughs> open, and he walks off the elevator. And my, my jaw just dropped because he had picked up on every single clue that would that he would connect with being Quaker because he is also Quaker. Wow. And um, and that was the, that's been the start of a beautiful friendship. So uh, we are both uh, have connections to Quaker meeting. We both now at this point don't go to Quaker meeting. We uh, uh, do other things, but. Um, but we have that in common, and that's how that's how we met. Wow, that's a pretty cool story. See that computers and libraries, computers yeah. and libraries, elevators, and then just picking up on random facts about a person. So I think that was two thousand seven, um, if I remember correctly. Uh, TS for training started in two thousand eight, and is coming up on its ten year anniversary. And they're over two hundred and twenty episodes now, right? Yeah, two hundred and twenty-two uh, at the last, the last one. That's impressive. That's longevity for you, right? Yep. So he he outlasted the podcast boom and then podcast bust, and now the resurgence of podcasting again. Yep. Well, yep. We got to give props to him because uh, he's doing something right. Yeah. Well, maybe he's just so, not listening to anybody. So, <laughs> well, and it started as this big group of people. Uh, that would that would be in on TS for training, 
he would do these live sessions at conferences. So, you know, go to computers and libraries or the ALA annual conference, find some room and just gather people around the microphone and hang out for a couple hours uh, with a bottle of wine and, you know, talking about technology. Um, the, the guests have ebbed and flowed over the years. Some of us have stayed kind of constant. Some people weave back in on occasion. Uh, the conversations have changed over the years. Um, you know, we've gone from being structured to being unstructured to being more structured. Uh, but yeah, you're right. We've continued basically every other week for 10 years. Wow, that, that really is cool because I, I, I was on uh, once and uh, I, I keep trying to get back, but I can never get that lunch hour because I can't do it when I'm actually sitting at work. So yeah. it's, it's a little rough, but I think the one time I was on, I was sitting in my car and, and I got ripped apart pretty good for that. <laughs> but, I've uh, done it from my car too. Oh, okay. So yeah. I'm not the only one then. No. Okay. I told him I was doing it with a bag on my head too. <laughs> are you on a tesla a self-driving car with a bag on your head it's good nice okay so we are going to take a short break and when we get back we are going to talk to jill about uh, some very interesting topics about uh libraries and accessibility you know uh, whether it's a traditional library service uh, digital materials or maker spaces we're going to talk about what accessibility is and how we can make uh what we do in public libraries uh, and probably academic libraries as well uh make it make things more accessible for patrons. So we'll be back in just a moment. You've been listening Oops. to the Library Pros Podcast. The Library Pros are brought to you by Pippin Production. Okay, we're back with Jill Hurst-Wall talking about accessibility. So our first question to you, Jill, is, uh, you know, we all know that content creation is, is, is a big thing in libraries. It has been big, and now it seems to be exploding with, with all the new uh, digital technology things that are happening. Uh, so the, the types of content, you know, have been changing from, from the traditional print to digital. And as we create that content, you know, whether it's traditional or digital or whatever we're doing, uh, we have to take into account the accessibility for patrons. Uh, can you share with us uh, what accessibility means in a library setting? Sure. So, um, wow. I know, um, it's a tall order, right? It's, it's, that's a big it's question. A, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, so accessibility... Um, means a bunch of different things in a library setting. Um, is your building accessible? Can people actually get into the building? Uh, can they maneuver around the building? So we often think of accessibility as mobility. Uh, can people actually move around the building? And, and so um, for me, that's kind of the first level of accessibility. Can people actually get there? And then once they get there, do they, um, can they get around on their own or do they need help? And so something to think about is if someone is blind and they come into your library, can they actually get from the door to the service desk 
on their own? Is there some clue, maybe how the carpeting is laid out or something else that will lead them on a path to the service desk? Um, can they find some things on their own once they're in the building? If a person is in the wheelchair, can they get around the building on their own? Um, so those types of things. Uh, I think more, that's become very normal because of the American with Disabilities Act that we think about physical accessibility. The parts that interest me more are, um, is our content accessible? Is our, are our websites accessible? Um, training materials, all that kind of stuff. And so, um, for example, um, are our materials available in different languages or can we make them available on demand in different languages? Uh, if we're having a training session and someone comes who needs sign language interpretation or needs information transcribed, um, uh, is that available? Can that be available on demand? Can we have someone come and do language translation? Um, can we, uh, from a collection development vantage point, ensure that materials in our collection are available in different languages, either because we know what languages are in our communities or we can do that on demand? Um, and so those are, those are the things I think about. And then the one that I know colleges are really um, being held, their, their fear being held to the fire is are their websites accessible? And uh, here at Syracuse University, all of our websites are being made accessible, which means that there is tagging behind the scenes so that a screen reader can use them. Um, you know, the layout can be used on a variety of different devices, so the websites are responsive uh, in terms of uh, being used on different devices, but also if someone is using a screen reader, um, they can read the websites, or if you just have low vision, the colors and everything are such that um, a person can read them. Sorry, I tend to just view information. No, no, it's that, great. This I, is this is excellent. Yeah, exactly what the people are looking for. And I guess I, I think you've probably already answered it, but I guess sum it up for us in, in who is accessibility for and what types of patrons, I guess, is this geared towards? And I think we know the answer, but yes. But could yeah, the, and, and just as an aside, could this also uh, uh, pertain to people with autism? That's true. That's true. And you remind me that I had someone in class a couple of years ago who was dyslexic. And so would uh, use uh, a word processing software, a word processing font, I think it was, that was better for her when she was editing. And then in her very last pass, she would like change it to Arial or whatever you know, the font was that the professor wanted. But um, yeah, there's, there's a lot of different things you have to think about in terms of accessibility. And there's a cost to it. So if you're doing collection development, which is a, a class that I taught last fall and I'll be teaching again in April, um, if you're doing collection development, do you actually have the money to ensure that if someone needs something in an accessible format that you can order it for them? And it is interesting how, um, how much budget plays in, in everything that libraries do, but especially for something like this, because yep. some may be ADA compliance issues and some may not. So, you know, you may have to balance fiscally what you're going to spend for ADA compliant things which are required versus things that 
are not required but still needed for accessibility. Right, right. Okay. Yeah. So tell us about um, what you see as the biggest challenge in regard to accessibility in a library setting. Uh, setting. You know, is, is it addressing the various needs of, of the patrons with different needs? Is it balancing it, like we said before, with the fiscal end of things? Is, I mean, because th there are so many technological things that need to be uh, examined and, and purchased, like uh, large screen monitors with, with magnifiers or large button keyboards, or like you were saying right. before, helping with people who maybe have dyslexia who have to have a special type of font in order to read properly. So you know, tell us about that a little bit. Um, I would wonder if the biggest need would be actually understanding what the issues are in your community. So if you think about where you live, and I think about where I live, do you automatically see all the accessibility needs in the community? Those people may not come to the library all the time, or they may, not, they may come and not make you aware of what their needs really are. They may be able to um, skirt around some of the issues or just do without. And so can a library, any type of library, look at its community and say, this is what needs are truly out there. Whether it's uh, looking at your staff, if you're um, supporting uh, teachers and staff or um, university staff or corporate staff and say, you know, what are the needs of those staff members? You know, can human resources tell you something about um, any uh, specific needs that might be in there? Or can you look at um, uh, the census for your demographic area, geographic area, and see what needs might be in the census? Can you look at uh, school data and see languages or see other needs? Um, and I think we just don't, I don't know that people always take the time to do that, to actually say, you know, what are the, what are the real needs in my community? Here in Syracuse, um, there are some phenomenal number of languages spoken in our K through 12 schools. I don't remember. I know it's over 40 languages. And um, by bet, our public libraries don't have books in all those languages, you know? So um, is that something they should be doing? Should they at least know what the languages are? Maybe have some basic books in those languages? Should they maybe find out what the popular languages are? Uh, and maybe they've done that, maybe they haven't. It also sounds too like um, in knowing your community, it, it not, necess not necessarily exclusively as an accessibility issue, it's part of what libraries should be doing regardless, dealing with their populations. Yep. One thing that I find interesting too, and Bob, maybe you can even uh, talk about this. Um, in a public library setting, we have a number of group homes who come in with people with varying levels of, of disability. And what's in, what I find interesting is they're living in the group home, but yet they're residents of other library districts. Mm -hmm. And what I find interesting is, I mean, it doesn't matter. If you're walking in the door, we're gonna treat you all the same. Right. But it is interesting to see how we can deal with people who have disabilities and make things accessible to them that they wouldn't ordinarily have accessibility to out in the, in, in the rest of the world. Um, 
and how libraries should be dealing with the group home environment that comes in to use their facility because it is a huge uh, thing for people who are in group homes. Is your other half going to say anything? Or is he going to sit there silently? <laughs> I'm pondering the question. You know, I, I think it's I think it's true. I, we've we have a lot of visitors from group homes in our area as well, and we welcome them just like any other patron, and we try to facilitate their needs um, as a library should for any patron. Um, you know, but it's it's difficult, I guess, um, scheduling that kind of thing because they kind of come in as a group and and they kind of surprise uh, staff uh, at the reference desks and, and different levels and. Um, Sometimes they'll wander over into the children's room and things like that. And, and it, it presents, uh, you know, a, I guess a case of its own for how the reference staff is going to deal with that and, and, you know, welcome them. Right. Instead of being like kind of afraid of how to handle it, those kinds of things. So, um, you know, one thing I, I'm sorry. The one thing I found is that um, we have people in our communities that we're just not used to dealing with. So yeah. group home, um, um, whatever it might be. And it's really easy to just not deal with them, right. to ignore them when they come into the library. Um, and, and maybe what we should be doing instead is going out to wherever they are, visiting them where they are, and kind of getting used to who they are. Like, okay, so I'm going to come to your group home, and I'm going to visit you and see what this is, see what your living condition is like, see what your needs are. And that way, when you come, I know a little bit more about you um, and, the, and this group home and what you all do. You know, maybe I can be, actually be more sympathetic or more helpful because I've seen the other side. Yeah, that's a fantastic point. I mean, we're so welcome, or at least I should say the, the collective we are so welcoming to the, the senior homes, right? They come in with the bus and we plan for that and we schedule that and whatnot. But I've never heard of a group or a library going out to a group home and, and welcoming them into the community through the library. You know, so that, that's a fantastic idea. And you talk about accessibility with regard to people with disabilities, but Bob, you bring up a really good point in uh, helping seniors, right? So seniors, yeah. accessibility for seniors, it, it's not really that much different than people who are group home people or people who may have a handicap or disability because you know, not every elderly person has a problem but there are some that may have uh, issues where you need wheelchair accessibility or walker accessibility, or maybe their, their hands don't work as well as they used to and they need help finding a book, holding a book. Maybe you walk something up to circulation for them, or maybe you have assisted listening uh, devices so they can hear better during a, a movie presentation or something like that. And I think with seniors, one of the differences with seniors than with um, uh, people I think of who might live in a group home is seniors have lived through a variety of situations. They, they, um, even when they are getting dementia, they have, they generally have maintained their social skills. And, and so we kind of count on that. But not everyone in every living situation has the same level of social skills. And so learning how to um, work with people and work with groups whose social skills are different than ours um, is really important. And that's not just people who live in group homes. There are different cultures whose social skills are different. And so understanding 
um, how that group interacts and how they're going to interact with you. And little things like, you know, how close people stand. I mean, there are some cultures where people stand very close together. And that's not an insult. It's just, you know, they're going to walk right up to you right. for that conversation. And you, and you have to be comfortable with that. Um, or, or at least be comfortable with it for the length of the conversation, knowing that that's, that's their culture. Right. And you have to be able to recognize that maybe if somebody is a, a recent immigrant uh, who there is a, a cultural clash or a cultural difference, uh, how to maybe if you're surprised by the behavior, you can maybe understand the behavior after a few minutes, just understanding there's a, there's a cultural problem. And one thing, th again, talking about accessibility, uh, it's one thing that, that I try to do. Um, I have an iPad at work that, that I use for reference work. And along with having all the services that we have in app form to show patrons, just in general what we have, one thing that I like to utilize, especially when it comes to non-English uh, speakers, is Google Translate. It is such an amazing tool. And it, it, as much as language is an important way to communicate, it's a barrier sometimes. Right. And so if I'm helping somebody, let's say, who's Cantonese, Chinese, can't speak English or doesn't speak very well, and it's very hard to understand her, I can take out that app, switch, and she'll know enough to say Cantonese. So I'll find Chinese Cantonese on the list, and I'll use the microphone, and I'll speak into it. And the, the way the app is structured now is you hit the microphone and you speak. After you're done speaking, it beeps, and then it says it in the, the foreign language. But it's also listening in both languages, so then she can respond without me having to switch languages. Right. And now we're having a conversation, and we're laughing, because this is how silly is this? This is how we have to communicate. But that makes part of that reference interview, even if it's not for material, is that, that interaction, that reference interview, it, it puts something there that's actually an accessibility thing for us as library professionals as well, to communicate, get that reference interview done, get the material or service that they need to them, and get them to where they need so they're happy, satisfied, and then you have another happy patron. So accessibility really does mean a lot. It's more than just helping group home people coming in or somebody who, who is disabled. It has to do with making services that we have available to everyone. Don't you, would you agree with that? That's a wonderful example. And you, and you remind me of embarrassing situations that I've watched where um, someone gets really frustrated with um, a person who doesn't speak English as their first language. You know, and um, I, I have this memory of watching someone at a uh, checking in at an airline who, you know, they were from overseas and the person behind the counter uh, was rattling off the questions really fast. And, and, um, uh, and then getting frustrated because the people didn't understand the questions. You know, did you pack your bag yourself? Which, you know, just... They like, only stand, understand the noun, bag. Bag. You know, and, and so uh, they're like, huh? And, you know, if you, if you stop and you don't answer the question immediately, then the person behind the counter thinks, well, you know, you didn't pack your bag yourself. You know, Miscommunication, you exactly. Yep. And communication is so integral in what we do in libraries because we're about communication, whether it's yep. reading, writing, you know, doing 
making something or attending a program. Without that communication, it makes things very difficult. And I think something is, and I'm going to say the word silly just because it, it, it fits with the context. Something as silly as speaking into an iPad makes such a huge difference because it lightens the situation. It doesn't make light of it, but it lightens yeah. the, the tenseness. It kind of takes that barrier away. And sometimes people would think, not, not the non-English speaker, but I've had colleagues in other libraries say, well, do you think that the patron's insulted that you're doing this? And, you know, I think it's quite the contrary. The, if you were to take yourself and reverse the roles where you're now in a foreign country, you don't speak the language and nobody speaks your language, and all of a sudden somebody comes up to you with a way to communicate easily and right. simply, I think I would be in incredibly grateful. And I've never had a patron who I've done this with to be en interact with me in any other way than being grateful because we were able to answer their question, get them what they need, and, and satisfy that need that they were looking for. And I think people are very patient if they know you're trying. You know, even if even if Google translate translates it badly, or you're trying to use a different language and you're using it badly, if you're trying, people will be patient and they will do everything they can to try to make the communication happen. So yeah, I, I I agree, Chris. I think it's an act of service, you know, and I think anybody appreciates an act of service that you're gonna do towards them, you know. So and they should all they should all receive the same level of service, no matter whether they come from a group home or or a different nationality or a different demographic, they should all be welcomed and, and we should do exactly what you're doing is go kind of, I say above and beyond, but that's really the level of service we should give to anybody that needs that kind of assistance. I would agree with that, Bob, because uh, above and beyond is really what we do now. At, at well, I don't, yeah, I mean, people, people in library world will think it's above and beyond, but Jill, Chris, if you agree with me, it, it really should just be our, our level of service should be high that there shouldn't have to be a extenuating or I did something extra for somebody. You should just always be available and ready to serve as you're called, you know? Yeah, absolutely. What do you think about that, Joe? I think, yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so, so I, two examples I want to bring up that you're, you're, you sparked in me. One um, is, um, you know, it's really easy now to, to make things uh, to have available uh, because we have printers and, and different, different making um, ways of making. But to maybe make some cheat sheets to have at the reference desk or the information desk in different languages. You know, of, of the, the normal questions that you might get asked or the normal directions people might need or whatever that might be, so that you can just, you know, if someone comes and asks, you have some cheat sheet in their language you can give them. Or um, uh, many years ago when I lived in Rochester, the uh, downtown post office had um, a postal clerk who was deaf. And uh, in front of him was this mat that faced um, the person who was standing at the counter, so faced the, uh, the customer, and it had all these different things that you would want to do. Like, did you want to buy stamps? Did you want to mail something? Did you want to mail an uh, envelope? Did you want a package? Did you want to do these different things? And you could point on the mat to what you needed, and that could be the start of the conversation. 
or you could hold up an envelope, you know, that was pretty obvious. I have an envelope. I need, you know, point to where you need a stamp. But he was really good at um, working with people, whether it's using a mat or using hand signals, to ensure that the, the customer got what they needed and he provided good service. Um, but we don't tend, I don't see a lot of um, cheat sheets, in quotation marks, around in our libraries that help to facilitate good service for people who might not speak the same language that um, we speak, or people who are, who are deaf, for example. I guess that leads into our next question, Chris, is, is that how does providing accessibility uh, impact the library's physical and digital space? And is, I guess, let us know, does this sound like it's an Americans with Disabilities compliance issue uh, as well, or? Is that for me or is that for? No, nope, that's okay. for you, Joe. That's for you, sorry. Um, you know, I don't know the ADA law that well, but I would think um, I would think that some of this probably um, would be in response to the American with Disabilities Act and what you're supposed to do in terms of accessibility. Like everyone should be able to access the materials in your library and use your services. Equal access for everyone. Um, I think it's also just morally the right thing to do. So uh, if you have people in your community who are unable to use your library services and they need those services, then how do you make those services available? I mean, morally, you should be doing that uh, from a, from a, um, you know, libraries uh, like to use the phrase social justice, you know, from a social justice vantage point, you know, we should be trying to serve everyone. And so some of these things would just be the right thing to do. I think you're right. And I think uh, the ADA should be uh, a benchmark but also it should be uh, not the maximum of what should be done, but kind of like ground level of what should, what should be done. Right. Yeah, so it's, it's like the, the, it's the carrot and the stick, the ADA, um, but at some point it should just be, this is what we do because we want to serve our community. You know, right. we're going to do we're going to do these things because it's the right thing for our community. It makes a lot of sense. Um, so, in keeping with this idea, um, trying to get buy-in from staff, right? Because that's always always the the, uh, the eight hundred pound uh, gorilla in the room, right? So, trying to get that that buy-in from staff, the the ones that said that's not the way we've done it. The way we've always done it has been A B C and not D E F. Um, Tell us how, and Maurice, if you're listening, don't roll your eyes. Tell us generally about the types of training that would be involved in adapting a library to this accessibility and dealing with the naysayers and the nopes and the not my jobs and, and all of those people who I'm hoping really don't even exist in library land anymore. And I hear Maurice laughing in the background. I hear that big <laughs> belly, belly laugh right now. <laughs> Because he's going to um, say something like, too bad. 
<laughs> so I, um, so in, in Syracuse last summer, the Onondaga uh, Public Library for their staff training day did a poverty simulation. And then the county libraries, when they had their staff training, um, whatever, they did a poverty simulation. And I know that uh, Andrea Snyder uh, out in Canandaigua area, I think it's coming up soon, uh, they're doing a poverty simulation. So these are happening all across New York State, and they can happen uh, anywhere in the United States. There's probably someone in the community who uh, can do these. There's actually a format for them. Uh, but going through some sort of a poverty simulation where you learn how people who um, are disadvantaged, you know, what their needs are and then what that means in terms of them using schools and libraries and other resources, that would be something great for library staff to do that could spark a very interesting conversation. Uh, the poverty simulation we did took under two hours. And we actually lived um, as people in this community uh, for four weeks. So we did four weeks in under two hours uh, and, and all the, the life things that happened to, to families and individuals in four weeks. Um, you could um, uh, do a, a, a staff training where people have to um, uh, you know, wear blindfolds or use a wheelchair or do all these different things that would allow them to see the building and see the services from a very different point of view. And all those things might get them to realize that they need to have buy-in. You know, so maybe telling, what I'm getting at is maybe telling them that they need to do this isn't, isn't going to work, but maybe getting them to experience what it's like um, from another person's point of view would actually be useful to them. Almost experiencing that sensory de deprivation with regard to that disability, right? Yeah. Yeah, that, that, that is interesting because it allows you to, for people who can't, uh, or maybe they're unable to be empathetic, to actually experience it firsthand and then say, oh, well, now I understand why, you know, Mr. Jones gets cranky when I hand him a book and he can't pick it up. You know, you know what I mean? It's, it's, it's almost like Pavlovian um, empathy. You know, it, wouldn't it be interesting if you met your library staff outside one morning? You said, you know, everyone come a half an hour early. We're going to do training. You know, meet in the, meet in the parking lot. And, uh, and you gave part of your staff wheelchairs. And you said, here, you're gonna, uh, here's your wheelchair, get in the wheelchair, uh, and you cannot leave the, this wheelchair for the next hour. And give uh, some people crutches, and give some people blindfolds, and some people like headphones where they can't hear anything, and just say, okay, so now you have to get into the library. That would you know, be interesting, and, yeah. And maybe send them in groups so that um, uh, to make it difficult for them to help each other. So yeah. send all send all the people with wheelchairs first and see, you know, you can't get out of your wheelchair, but can you get into the library? That would okay. uh, be eye opening, I think, for some people. Yeah. 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 <clears throat> absolutely. I doubt they think about that perspective uh, on a daily basis when they come to work. You know. 
Sure, you, you take things for granted. The same way, um, like if you've ever broken a leg, you know, I, I had a broken foot, and now you're on crutches for, for a month or two months, and you have to get up and down stairs in your house. Well, wow, all of a sudden, something that you didn't even think about now is a monumental task. Yeah. And think about, go ahead, I'm sorry. No, I, I was on crutches for a couple days decades ago, and um, uh, friends sent me uh, food. And so I was like, great, you know, and they put it on the dining room table and left, and I was able to eat. <laughs> and then I couldn't get the dishes into the kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny, because it, it's true. Now, how are you going to hold the dish and move the crutches at the same time? So I think that's important as as a training tool to maybe have that kind of exercise where now you have to be in a wheelchair for an hour and be given tasks to do that patrons would ordinarily do, but now doing it in from that point of view. Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, the makerspace movement, you want to talk about that? Yeah. Why don't you go with that one, Bob? So, Jill, tell us, um, I guess, any ideas about how a makerspace could uh, be more accessible and how it could be a tool in facilitating accessibility. I know that there's makerspaces that come in every shape and size and whatever on the inside. And so I think, um, again, just understand the needs of your community and what people like to do and want to do. And then Creating maker activities that meet that um, is one thing to do. Being really patient with people uh, is also worthwhile because some people who don't have accessibility issues may just have problems learning whatever that thing is. And so um, having a lot of patience in teaching people how to um, do whatever that makerspace activity is and being able to explain it in little chunks um, is important. So um, yeah, a lot of patience. The, um, um, I think the other thing is not assuming that people can't do, uh, but recognizing that people can overcome a lot of different um, challenges to do things. And so just not um, freaking out when someone comes and says they want to do something and you can't figure out how they're going to do it. Like just work with them and be ver very patient and see if they really can do that thing. It may take them longer. Uh, maybe what you need to do is, is give them, again, step-by-step -step instructions and just be aware that they're not going to hurt themselves. You know, but but give them that opportunity. Let them let them succeed. You know, and you might be very surprised that they can actually do that. Now, at the Nyla conference, uh, one of my students was there who's blind, and she did great getting around the conference. Uh, but I didn't realize she knits, and I was sitting in a session. I was actually at a on a panel. And she was in the audience, and she pulled a ball of yarn out of her bag, and yarn did what yarn does. It fell on the floor and rolled. Hmm. 
And in my head, I'm like, oh, this is bad. This is really bad. But you know something? She's an independent woman who knits. She was fine. I was the person freaking out in my head. Right. She wasn't freaking out at all. <laughs> <laughs> She's a good knitter. <laughs> well, and that, that goes to um, what we as people without a di particular disability see in people who have the disability. We don't necessarily see how they adapt and how they do what they do on a daily basis. And we automatically assume because they may have a deficit that we don't have that we need to help them. And that, that's not always the case either. Right. Right. It's also okay to ask people what they need or how to work with them better. So to ask someone, um, you know, if you're blind, for example, what kind of situations don't you do well in? And what I've learned is that if you're blind, you don't do, people don't do well in very noisy situations because they, they listen for clues. I mean, that's how they find their way around. That's how they know, um, uh, Chris, that you're speaking and to walk over to you is that they're listening. And if they're in a really noisy environment, then it's just maddening to them. And so asking people, you know, you know, how can I help you? Or what should, you know, what kind of situations don't you do well in? Or anything I should know, you know, so that I, I'm in, I can just ensure that you're safe and that you're not stressed out. That's excellent. So this has all been a great discussion. And we want to thank you for coming on the podcast and sharing about all these different things. And we've actually brainstormed in some other scenarios, too, that maybe we didn't think about before. Um, but we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we are going to be asking Jill our top 10 library questions, or what we like to call the 032 list, which is the Dewey number for top 10 lists. And as we always do, we need to give credit where credit is due to our friend Melanie Cardone from the Longwood Public Library for naming the list. So we will be right back. Okay, we're back with Jill Hurst-Wall from Syracuse University, who's going to be our next participant in our 032 list. So the questions in our list are, have been inspired by Literary Hub, and if you listen to our podcast, you know my speech already. They're an informative library-related <laughs> news site, and it has interviews and stories related to library land, and you can always see their work by going to lithub.com uh, and Take a listen and take a look because uh, they do some really cool, important things for libraries in the library world, and um, it's worth a read. So uh, thank you, Literary Hub. Okay, <laughs> so first question. I'm going to hit you with the first question here. What did you want to be when you were a child? Um, I've wanted to be a librarian ever since fifth grade. She's one of them. 
Yeah, she knew what she wanted to do right away. Right from the fifth grade. There's a very, very rare few that knew it right from the word go. My wife was one of them, actually. Oh, that's cool. So, yeah. yeah. So she walked into the, her library, which is the library she works in now, and says, wow. Mommy, I want to work here one day. So, yeah, there are a few of you out there. <laughs> okay, Bob, you're All up. Right, I'm up. So what is your first memory of a library, and who brought you to the library for the first time? Um, my first memory would be my elementary school library. Um, so I don't know who took me to the library for the first time. It was probably a teacher. Uh, it was a, uh, a classroom that had been converted into a library. And, um, and what I, so in fifth grade, I, I realized I liked libraries and that's kind of my, like this is what I want to do. Um, I liked the organizing aspect of libraries. You know, again, I'm old. And so back in fifth grade, there were no computers. There was just, you know, those library cards and the stamps um, that you stamped books and stamped them in and out. I remember um, that stuff. Yeah. And, so I, and, uh, and then seventh and eighth grade, I worked in my junior high library, I worked in the senior high library, I worked in my college library, um, all doing kind of uh, technical services and um, shelving and, you know, that kind of stuff. Uh, uh, filing books in the actual card catalog. Uh, f filing cards, excuse me. Filing cards in the actual card catalog. Um, uh, yeah, so, sorry. I, I went off on a tangent. <laughs> it's okay. You fit in perfectly around here. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, so what I should tell you is that... Um, Several years ago, a friend of mine, also from Harrisburg, uh, Pennsylvania, uh, remarked that the Harrisburg uh, Public Library had, the Harrisburg Public had a new library. And, uh, and he said, you know, you remember the children's room in the public library. Don't you remember the children's room in the public library? And I was like, no. I don't know that I ever went to the Harrisburg Public Library. When I was doing research in junior high, my parents took me to the state library, which is about a mile from where I lived. And so my, my research library in junior and senior high school was, was the state library. Wow, that's pretty impressive. Okay, so we kind of covered this, but it's part of our questions. When you decide to work in a library setting, and if not, what was your first career path? And we kind of covered this, right? Right. Yep. Right. You're a lifer. I'm a lifer. <laughs> You're a lifer. I've done, I've, I've done other things along. So I worked in radio for four years. I've worked in IT. Um, but overarching, I've been in the information field and worked in libraries. Well, maybe you can help us because we need help with radio to do the podcast and then IT. You know, it just something always fails no matter what we try and do. So I did IT before it was all public plug and play, you know, back when you could actually do things, you could get into your computers. Yeah. 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 Now plug and play just doesn't work half the time. So it's just no. <laughs> it's plug and pray. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I always love this question. Who is your favorite fictional librarian? Um, uh, so I'm a non book reading librarian. My, uh, my favorite formats are not books. So my, I would have to say my favorite fictional librarian would be from the TV show, The Librarians. Oh, cool. That's it. 
Well, it's good, good to see that there's another non-reading librarian here. I'm, I'm in the same boat with you. Yes. Yes. <laughs> there's two of us. Okay. I'm a, I'm a non-reading technologist. Does that help? Does that <laughs> there you go. Okay. So our next question, what would you be doing if you were not working in a library? Well, I don't work in the library now. Um, I'm faculty. Um, you know, I don't know. If I weren't teaching and I weren't working in a library, um, I don't know if I'd be working at like Home Depot or some farm, uh, farm equipment store or gardening store or maybe I'd just be gardening. Um, I have no idea. <laughs> I'd probably be teaching people in a, in a gardening store how to use the tools and, you know, how to plant whatever. So I'd still be teaching. <laughs> That's great. Okay, Bob, you're up. Okay, so what is your favorite section of the library? The cafe. <laughs> that's a good answer. I wasn't expecting that, but that's a great answer. Uh, yeah, don't, uh, the cafe. I don't know. A good answer. The comfortable seating overlooking the lawn. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so if you had infinite space and budget, what would you add to, I guess, the Syracuse Library? So I, um, hmm, I don't know. So the Syracuse University Library does not have a makerspace. Um, there is a makerspace on campus that's in an IT area. So it could be a makerspace. Um, it doesn't. Uh, it doesn't have a living room. So if you've ever been to Seattle Public Library, there's a space in Seattle Public Library that they refer to as the living room. And it's really this very comfortable seating area uh, that's next door to uh, the cafe. And so I think I would wanna add to any library um, a space that's just really comfortable seating. That's you know couches and um, coffee tables and uh, just nice space for people to sit around and read or use their technology or or talk to people. It shouldn't have to be quiet space, but it should be you know space just like your living room that lots of different activities can occur in. So, what do you love about your library? Um, the, um, um, so the campus library, um, I like the, I actually do like the different seating areas in the library. Uh, the layout over the years that I've been here at Syracuse has gotten much better. It does have a cafe. Um, and so it's become a more, um, friendlier library, a library where there, there are spaces you can hang out in, uh, both noisy and quiet. I really like that. Um, 
our downtown public library, which was just renovated a couple years ago, has a phenomenal maker space in it. Um, it has, it's just a really cool space overall. Um, and I like the fact that it's very welcoming and that there's something in there for everyone. Um, you know, it's just a welcoming environment with lots to do. Okay, so this is one of my favorite questions, and I know you don't work in the library per se, but maybe you can adapt this question a little bit. Uh, the question as it reads says, what is the weirdest thing that's ever happened in your library? So maybe you can adapt that towards, you know, students or your experiences in the past. I'm thinking, I'm thinking... The weirdest thing? Weirdest thing. Not necessarily the worst. <laughs> the weirdest. The weirdest. weirdest. In public libraries, everybody's got horror stories, right? So I don't know yeah. if, this, if the same holds true in academia. If this was a public library, you'd have four already. <laughs> and then there would you be know, the, I can't say this one on the air. I'll tell you right, off yeah, air. These, yeah, these oh, two no, I can't I, talk I've about. I've already been through that one in my head. Like, oh, is that right? <laughs> that, 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 that came up. Like, I can't tell that one. Yeah. Uh, and that was about the, the college library, one of the college libraries um, at Maryland. Um, the weirdest thing. I don't know that I have a weirdest thing. Um, and it's only because, you know, my, my library experience has actually been in corporate libraries and not in public or academic. I'm a, I was a corporate librarian. Um, uh, the weirdest thing in the corporate library, uh, the thing that comes to mind that's not actually the weirdest thing, it was actually very touching, is that the one space that we had for a couple of years had um, rolling stacks. And at the end of the, it was four or six of them. And at the end, you know, you have that um, piece of metal in the floor that sticks up that stops the last stack from rolling. And we would always kick it. Like you're always kicking that stupid thing. <laughs> Uh, and there was a guy who would come to the library to, to work, who worked in the trades uh, in the corporation. And one day he came with the hazard tape. And he got down and he put hazard tape around these little metal stops so we could actually see them and hopefully not kick them. <laughs> <laughs> so that was, that was slightly weird, very nice, um, and very helpful. <laughs> <laughs> so I suppose who is your favorite regular Patron, and I guess, right, so there aren't any patrons most of the time, or I guess it would be... A student, maybe. Students, yeah, students. Yeah. Um... Change names to protect the innocent. <laughs> or is there one that's, that's since graduated and come back and something, you know, something dramatic? Or... Oh, um... oh, I have lots of favorites. Um, so, hard, so hard to pick. Uh, we've had um, students come to our program from around the world. Uh, I have a, a graduate who is from South Africa, back in South Africa. She she has c actually come back um, since she graduated. We've got one in Kazakhstan, um, an American over in Florence, uh, working in Florence, um, Mexico, uh, the uh, Caribbean. Um, so really all over. Um, I, I've enjoyed students who come in and not that they know what they want to do after graduation, 
but they're just really passionate and they're willing to um, to try lots of things and they're not in it for the grade. They're not in it for um, the, the uh, GPA, the grade point average. They just want to learn and they want to experiment and they want to do. And those are the ones I, I truly enjoy. Um, you know, they're, they're willing to ask why and why not and why can't I and, and you know, all those tough questions, but also um, willing to listen and, and willing to push. And, mm. um, and I've, I've always enjoyed those students. Okay, so our last question is question 11 in our 10, uh, top, 10. 10, top 10 list. Uh, what are Great. people without library cards missing out on? You're missing, they're missing out on the fact that there's things that you can do without going to the library if you have a library card. And so there's lots of things you can do from home or from work with your library card from your computer, whether it's downloading a book, um, taking a, an online class, um, downloading music, um, you know, doing family research, whatever it might be. There's just lots of things you can do uh, with a library card. And a library card is super easy to do. Um, and even sometimes you can get a library card for a city or for a library that's outside of your um, normal location that might get you access to more resources. So, for example, you can get a library card for New York Public Library. You know, there are ways of doing that. Um, you can use your, if you're in New York State, you can use your driver's license to get access to databases to the New York State Library. So, don't just think of it as you need a library card for your local library, but maybe you need a library card or some other access mechanism um, to get you resources at a library that's far away. It's very cool. Great answers. And very, very thoughtful answers, too. We don't usually get that much thought put into uh, our answers because usually it's knee-jerk reactions. And <laughs> See, I'm a teacher. You know, I have to, you know, I have to explain things. That's what we do. Well, how, That's funny, the difference. Well, how funny is it that Maurice had the answer within, before we even finished the sentences? Yeah, I think he interrupted most of our questions, right, and finished them for us. Or he asked, <laughs> he asked a question on top of that. He'll say, well, I'm going to ask you what was yes, your yeah. real favorite patron and why. Yeah. And we were around. on the spot because we had oh. no script. He should just call himself Socrates. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Jill, we have to thank you for coming on. Uh, I know yeah, we had some technical great. difficulties earlier, but this it really was worth the, the, the wait. People don't know that, though. Why do you have to say that? Now well, you're just fine. It off. They don't fine. even know that. It's okay. The people, people listening have no clue about our difficulties. Well, it's it's a challenge. It's the challenge of podcasting, right? Now they know. Now they know we're not perfect, Chris. Nice job. Yeah. Like if, <laughs> if they thought we were perfect before, then then they have a special. Uh, <laughs> that's, they that's have true. a problem. Yeah. yeah. So, so as a so wait a second. So Chris, as yeah. a non book reading librarian yeah um if you were to recommend a book what would it be oh wow what's a book that you've read nice that work you, that you kind like. of like you know you would say to people this it took me forever to read but this was worth reading i like the way you did that i'm actually um what was the one i listened to um setting politics aside i actually 
listened to a book on CD of Megyn Kelly's book, her biography. Oh. And I found her completely fascinating. She's a native of Syracuse. And uh, the things that she went through in her life and the adversity that she had to go through, we had very, we had a lot of parallels in our lives uh, with regard to oh. school and, and not, not some of the struggles, but not some of the struggles that um, she encountered as a woman, but encounters with academia, family, and things like that. Uh, I, I really enjoyed her book a lot. Yeah. And there's a book uh, written by a gentleman, uh, I forget his name, Conlon, I think his name is. It's a book called Blue Blood, and it's not associated with the television show. He went to Harvard University and decided after he graduated from Harvard to become a New York City police officer. Wow. And he described his experiences as a New York City cop. So yeah. those are the only two books that I could really say that you know were interesting. I'm reading a biography about Bing Crosby, but if anybody knows the best podcast, they know that I, they don't want to hear anything else about me talking about Bing Crosby because I'm a Bing Crosby nut. So, um, yeah, that's... That's all I would have. How about you? What's the, what's the last book you read? <laughs> uh, I have three books on my reading stack. Um, and I'm so, the one book I was so, which I actually have finished, I was so bad at that I would start reading again and realize I was reading the, like the same passages over and over again because I was looking at the wrong bookmark in the book. Um, <laughs> I've done that. <laughs> so uh, the book that I always point to um, as something I recommend to people is Gardening at Dragon's Gate, which took me like a year and a half to read, uh, if not longer. But it's a wonderful book. It's, it's part autobiography, part about gardening, and part about this um, uh, Buddhist uh, monastery in California and their garden. And it's a wonderful book. It changed how I think about compost and my compost got better after reading that book even though compost is like just one tiny part of the book um, the other book that I've recently recommended to people is a book called Weeds which is a British book um, on, on weeds and how weeds propagate and um, just a fascinating read I don't, I don't remember the authors of either one, but they're both obviously gardening-related, and I like gardening. Very, very cool. See that? We got a curveball thrown at us. You have any books, Bob, other than uh, uh, Cobalt? I'm a, John, I'm a John Grisham guy. I'm a John Grisham guy, so The Whistler is one I'm into right now. And um, I'm a big podcast guy. I listen to Chuck Swindoll and those kind of guys on the big, on the big podcast scene, I suppose. I listen to a lot of podcasts. That's really, yeah. um, rather than reading, I have uh, a bunch of different podcasts that I listen to and that I'll, um, you know, just do maybe single episodes of. The one I really like now, which is starting up again, is um, uh, Ear Hustle, hmm. which is being done by um, a, uh, an, uh, an inmate and a an, um, volunteer at San Quentin Prison. They did their first season last year, and now they're starting their second season of podcast. I'm going to check that out. That sounds pretty interesting. It does. Yeah. yeah. Wonderful, wonderful. Yeah, podcasts are a wonderful thing. Thank goodness they're around because it's, a, it's an amazing new medium. It's new, but it has, it's not new. It, it's kind of... And there we have, T is for Training, 2000, 2008. That's right. 
So are we going to really give Maurice another plug? Well, we haven't plugged Ellen Druda yet, so we got to give Maurice a couple. Oh, of yeah, we got to get Ellen Druda in because every time <laughs> I just we, did. Because every time not... you got to say Ellen Druda one more time. Every time we say Ellen Druda, we get five dollars. I just snuck her in. Jill, give us an Ellen Druda. Ellen Druda. That's yeah, There you, you go. Five bucks. We're up to that's that's almost thirty dollars already. Look at that. Yeah. So we keep saying Ellen Druda. Maybe we'll get up to fifty. She's going to retire on Ardon. Nice. Very good. So when Ellen Druda retires, she's going to actually have to sign over part of her Ellen Druda's fund uh, fund to us. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a support Ellen Druda fund, even though she doesn't need a fund. Exactly. It's good. Oh, that's great. So thanks again, Jill. This is a great fun. And, you know, I, I hate to say we have to wrap up this episode, but we have to wrap up. It's terrible. So, you know, this is all the time we have for the episode. Uh, so, but if you have any questions or comments on our show, please go to the contact us section of our website, thelibrarypros.com. And, you know, we include all links and photos and all cool stuff uh, for every episode on the site. And you can always check us out on Twitter at, at the Library Pros or at Facebook at facebook.com slash librarypros. And don't forget to subscribe to our RSS feed, which nobody really understands anymore, except that it's just a link. That uh, list is getting ridiculously long. I right? had to read that on the opening. Cool. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. So, yeah. So we're on Apple Podcasts, which used to be iTunes, uh, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We're everywhere. all over the place we're now. Everywhere. So, or just throw us in Google and it'll come up. We're uh, playing in the Mars Tesla. I hope so. <laughs> the Mars, the Tesla on its way to Mars. Te I'm telling you. So, Elon Musk has put us on. We are playing. So everyone out there that listens to us and is being <laughs> silent right now, please just go to whatever, whatever service you get our podcast at and leave us a review. Even if you want to tell us we stink, just so we get some oh, kind of feedback. No, why negative? Not negative. No, we don't have to be negative, but, you know. Oh. Yeah. So, you know, but we always have to remind people, too, that, you know, the opinions stated by the library pros and their guests are solely those of Chris and Bob and are not those of the Sachem Public Library, where I work, or the M.S. Clark Memorial Library, where Bob works. Five bucks. Or, or Syracuse University. Or Syracuse, or Syracuse University. University. <laughs> where Joe works. <laughs> All right. So. That's it. That's it for this episode, and we will see you next time. You've been listening. You've been listening to the Library Pros Podcast. The Library Pros are brought to you by Pippet Productions and by the Library Pros themselves, Krista Cristofaro and Bob Johnson. Special thanks to Sachem Public Library for providing space for this podcast. Until the next turn of the page, I'm your announcer, Carlton Welch. You've been listening to the Library Pros Podcast. The Library Pros are brought to you by Pippet Productions.